We are wrapping up a series that we began about seven weeks ago called Peace of Mind, and we've been exploring what Jesus has to offer in this wide range of our mental health flourishing. You know, Maria, you talked about our children and our adults. We all have kind of been paying attention to what's surfaced over the last season before the pandemic, through it, and post. And so we've been spending some time on it, Hannah, and today we're going to kind of wrap it up together. And I'm actually glad you're here. Okay, this is not like just uh, to say it because I'm supposed to. Uh, Hannah is actually my favorite person on the planet. And and at the same time, though, what we're going to talk about today, we were talking about this yesterday. I've seen you in our home. I've seen you walk with me through it. I've seen your uh, coworkers and the work that you do in various places speak to the fact that what we're talking about today, that you embody this way and you practice it. So I'm actually really glad we get to do this together today. Yeah. So thank you. Well, I'm glad to be here. Um, and I actually love this this sort of topic that we've been walking through together as a community. Yeah. I think the fact that we're talking openly about mental health and some of the things that, that play into that is critical. Yeah. Um, and you may have been here for some or all of those, but we've talked through the gift of peace, uh, what we do in overwhelming moments, anxiety, and we'll talk, talk about another part of that today, uh, burnout, emotions, relational wounds. And today is something that I think, I mean, I think you'll hear this charged throughout with hope and invitation. Yeah. Um, it's something that takes courage. You know, I did, I told Justin when he asked if I would share this with him, I was like, am I qualified? <laughs> like, you know, I was like, this, this feels like a lot of pressure to come up here and, and claim like, oh, I'm a non-anxious presence. But um, I am not always, as my children could certainly uh, testify. <laughs> but, um, but that is what we're talking about today. Kind of the culmination of all these topics is what would it look like for yeah. us in this world, for each of us, more often than not, uh, to be recognized or to have a presence of being a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. Yeah, and we were talking about it. And can you, uh, would you agree with us that we find ourselves all the time in kind of anxious systems? Does that feel like a real statement to you? We were talking about it, and I was reminded, uh, there was a guy named David Foster Wallace who kind of delivered a famous commencement address back in 2005. And and in it, he was telling the story, like, you know, there were these fish kind of swimming by, and uh, this older fish appro- approaches the two younger fish, and he's like, you know, how's the water, boys? And they swim on a little longer, and they look at each other, and like, what's water? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think it's that thing that the anxious cycles or systems that we live in, it's the water that we find ourselves in at home, um, in friendship, at school, at work, in churches, and organizations, and community. Like, it's the water we swim in, right? You with me? And so I think when Hannah says, like, today we're going to talk about what does a non-anxious presence look like, it's a unique phrase, but I think it piques our interest on some level. And you and I were talking about this. I first came across that phrase several years ago when a friend gave me a book. Like, that's happened a few times, right? Yep. Friends will tell me about books, and then I spend way too much of our budget on them. Too many books. Okay, there you go. So, um, But there's a book by a guy named Edwin Friedman called A Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. And um, Friedman was uh, a therapist and a rabbi, and he had been uh, informed by or helped by studying what's known as like family systems and how the systems that we find ourselves in affect our life and our flourishing. Well, he became known as someone who not only kind of brought the help of that to his synagogue and to churches, but even later in his life was sought out by businesses, by educational institutions, even governments all over the world. 
because uh, he, he was known as saying something, the anxious systems we swim in, they range from our house to the White House. There's no place you can go that we don't feel their weight. So Friedman's the one who kind of came up with that, um, that language. And there's a cycle that he developed, uh, the anxious cycle or the vicious cycle that we're going to put on the screen just to unpack a little bit of context of that language and then what Jesus might offer us to follow into it. So, yeah. And I think, you know, we refer to this as the anxious cycle, but Friedman actually called this the vicious cycle. Yeah. And I think that, that charged language is important for us because I think that we feel that when this plays out in our lives, in ourselves and around us. And we're seeing this kind of two-dimensional, you know, as a, as a moving circle. And it does move in that way. But I think also that that sort of insinuation of the vicious cycle is this is circling the drain. <laughs> you know, we're thinking about that when this cycle plays out, we are spiraling downward, right. um, not just not just around. And I think we'll, we will come back to these things, but to kind of give an initial overview of what, what this vicious cycle was, Friedman started with reactivity. Yeah. And with that, he says, essentially, you know, something happens around me, right? Something charged with some kind of emotion, distress, conflict. And that, that if I am reactive, then I react to that situation with internal anxiety. So my feelings, you know, I'm indexing off of what's happening around yeah. me. Yeah. Um, the second thing is hurting. And I think we can all think of how this is happening. I think even if you're playing out in your mind, like what do these anxious systems look like in our world? We have abundant examples of this, but it's, we basically choose camps, right? Something happens that's charged and it's like, oh, you're with them, I'm with them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like, we're going to separate, right? And so we herd and, and create distance, divide into groups. Um, from hurting, this becomes much easier. When, when I'm standing here and you're over there, right. well, clearly you're wrong. <laughs> like, that's that's and, actually true. And but your going, group is wrong, yes. right? And so we move from these from herds into blame displacement, yeah. right? Where we, we other someone or objectify. Right. Right. Um, and then move into, from that, a quick fix mentality. And that is where we want to feel better, right? And so I don't like this yucky feeling in me. I don't like what's happening with this conflict. I want it to stop, you know? And so we're looking for a silver bullet or maybe we're just just completely departing the situation, you know, yeah. kind of peace out. Um, and then finally, kind of the, the sort of peak of all this, um, w where it starts and where it ends, is that there is a lack of what we would call well-differentiated leaders. Right. And we're going to get into that topic of differentiation. That's not a word we use a lot, right. you know, in our, in our usual lives. I think Justin will walk us through that. But we're going to move beyond just thinking of this as leadership. It's not just if you're the boss in this situation that this plays out. It plays out in all of us. So yeah. I would say, even think through that. You could even write, you know, a little aside in your notes you know, well-differentiated humans. Right. Yeah. So what no, is differentiation? I, I love that because on, on a most basic level, we are all leaders because we all, first and foremost, we lead ourselves. So back to that notion of being well-differentiated leaders. Again, we don't use that kind of language in our house. Let me just throw that out. Do any of you, like, is that your, <laughs> your go-to jam? Like, you're not being very uh, differentiated right now. Uh, we don't use those terms. Try it today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but we, as we came across Friedman's work, as we came across this, I felt like really helpful image of the, the cycles that swirl about and heard this word differentiation, we kind of dug in. Uh, and matter of fact, this summer, we were on a vacation road trip. And I don't know if we caused our kids some anxiety on this, but we will sometimes we'll listen to like uh, audiobooks while we drive on vacation. Did any of you do that? 
Well, you have to talk to my kids on how that's working out for them. They're I don't know. subjected to our choices. I, I feel like they're often reacting against us when we do this. But, um, but differentiation, I felt like we should define that word. And one of the books we listened to this summer by Kathleen Smith, a book called Everything Isn't Terrible, which is such a great title. Um, and it's a book that we found ourselves agreeing with some parts and pushing back like any book, right? But she defines differentiation as one's ability to be in contact with others while retaining the ability to think for oneself. Okay, that's helpful. Um, another nuance to that that I found helpful, uh, another book called um, The Leader's Journey I came across some time ago by a handful of authors, they define differentiation as this. It deals with the effort to define oneself, to control oneself, to become a more responsible person, and to permit others to be themselves as well. Differentiation is the ability to remain, I love this, remain connected in relationship to significant people in our lives and yet not have our reactions and behavior determined by them. Do you think that would be helpful? Do you, th you think it would be helpful for me to live into that way? Sometimes. I, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, so those are descriptions of differentiation that I think can kind of pull us into the health and wholeness, but we also ourselves, and I bet our friends here know what it's like when there's a lack of differentiation. Talk to us about that. Yeah, and I think that that, you know, as we meld through that this entire series we've been looking at, what's the example of Jesus? What is the wholeness he offers us that contrasts what we're experiencing in the world? And I think that verse that we've read over all of it um, really plays into this differentiation piece, which says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Yeah. And that was from John 14, 27. And I think when we hear that and we think about how does that play out into this differentiation conversation, that contrasts with what a lack of differentiation can look like. And I think we will, we will all be familiar with these things in different ways. And I right. think, you know, think through, okay, what are the snippets of your life? Um, I, I can think of places in my life that, that all of these things happen, but it can look like, okay, this thing happens, right, where I have the opportunity to have an anxious reaction. And what I might do is a fight, flight, or freeze yep. response, right? We're human. That's what we do. And that what fight could look like, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Maybe you see that play out on social media. Maybe you see that play out in real life. Do you think lots of minds are being changed by those unloadings on social media? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think probably so, but it's like, you know, we get triggered, right? And then we're like, Bleh! you know, I'm going to fight. Um, or it could look like flight, right? Like, I am out of here, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I am leaving this conversation. I'm leaving this place. I'm leaving this relationship, whatever it may be. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to create emotional distance of some kind yeah. um, because I don't want to engage this anymore. My anxiety is, is leading to that flight response. Or it could look like freezing. And that's where we, you know, we either stonewall, get silent or become paralyzed, right? Where we maybe just can't function yeah. um, because we are frozen in that situation. Um, I think beyond fight, flight or freeze, we see triangulation. That's another word we don't use all the time, but it's like, we had this, you know, you know, I'm so frustrated. You forgot to roll the trash out again before Friday morning. And now I hear that. This <laughs> did happen two weeks ago. So I, do we need to talk about this? Well, so there may be rage texting okay. involved okay. <laughs> yes, no, um, in the response to this, but, but it could look like instead of going to Justin and saying the level of frustration I feel when you do not get the can out, <laughs> you know, um, you know, to him, it might be that I pick up the phone, right. And I'm like, 
Frankie, I am just so mad. <laughs> like for the third week in a row, Justin did not take the trash. No, 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 no. It was one week. <laughs> no. Oh, this is your example. I'm sorry. It, it, Keep gro- going. it grows, right? Yeah, no. But it's it's where we involve another party, right, yeah. into our frustration. Yeah. So instead of going to the source, you know, it's I'm I'm putting it on blast, right, or right. bringing someone else in to right. to stir the pot. Um, the third way I think that we see this lack of differentiation is an either over or under functioning. Yeah. So it is either that I'm going to step in and take over, right? Or it's like someone else isn't doing what they should, so I'm just going to pick up all of that, right? I'm going to over function in this scenario. Or I'm going to under function, which is like I am so overwhelmed by all this that I'm like, I'm going to do nothing and I'm going to watch Netflix for the next 20 hours, right? Yeah. Because I am not differentiated from this situation. So those are some of the ways I think that we see that lack of differentiation live out in our real lives. Yeah, so we've all been to class now with Friedman and the vicious or anxious cycle. How you feeling? You good? Okay, we've thrown some vocabulary words at you. There'll be a test on the way out. Uh, But isn't there a normal question that maybe has risen during our time? So in the midst of this, what do you do? So what do you do? Because I watched your heads nod and say, yep, I see that we uh, live our lives in anxious systems. And probably a lot of these things we've talked about, you're like, yep, I can point that on the map of my life. So what do you do in this kind of moment where the vicious cycle is just spiraling downward? So I do want to lean back on Friedman and then segue most beautifully to Jesus because he's the best example of it. Uh, Friedman said, when you're in a moment like this, the only thing you can do to interrupt that cycle is you have to inject a non-anxious presence into the midst of it. And he talks about that non-anxious presence as being a differentiated person, and he describes them like this. It's someone who has the clarity about his or her own life goals, and therefore someone who is less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about, who can be separate while still remaining connected, who can manage his or her own reactivity. The only way you interrupt the cycle is a person like that has to be injected into it. And do you know who is, I think, the best embodiment, the most pure, beautiful picture of that is Jesus. Think of the incarnation. We're just a few weeks out of Advent and then into Christmas. The creator of the universe, the God of the ages, has put on flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. And he shows us this way over and over and over. I mean, I think you could literally say God interrupted the anxious world we live in by his non-reactive or non-anxious presence. And so what we want to spend a few minutes doing before we head back into the lives God's given us and see what Jesus would invite us to do with this is look at how we could be a non-anxious presence by looking at Jesus as both our model and provider and then the one we emulate. Sound good? So as we lean into that, I think one way we're a non-anxious presence is we prioritize that differentiation we've talked about over reacting. And I want to walk you through how Jesus does this. Remember Um, A moment ago that I I read that quote by Friedman that said, the non-anxious presence is someone who knows who they are. They have clarity about their life goals. Remember that part? They know who they are. There's a few statements in the Gospels that just kind of came to mind as I was thinking about how Jesus embodies this. I'll give you a few. So in the prayer that Jesus is praying that we have on record in John chapter 17, he says this to his father, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I know who I am. I knew what was mine to do. The only way Jesus could say this is also by knowing what wasn't his to do. Does that make sense? I, Father, I, I did what you, told, what you gave me to do, my part. 
He doesn't say, I did everyone else's part. I did my part. There's some real clarity about who he was in that statement. There's another place in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus says these words. For the Son of Man, that's a title that was given to Jesus that he used of himself. The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus knew he wasn't on the planet to do everything, but that's one of the things he was here to do. He wasn't here to try to make all the religious folks and all their religious systems happy. He was coming after the people who had been forgotten and ostracized and pushed to the margin, and he was making a whole new humanity out of all of us who knows what it's like to be broken. He knew what was his to do. He knew who he was. And then there's a statement that I, for years, have found so helpful. It's, it's like if you had to sum up Jesus's, like life mission in one sentence, and a lot of theologians and scholars have talked about this. If you look in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And I think sometimes those words get lost on us because of how they've been treated through time. But this is Jesus's mission statement. The time has come when God is with the people he loves. The kingdom of God, the way things are supposed to be, God with us has come. The notion of even repentance is literally just coming back home to our most true and authentic selves the way we were created to live with God, with ourselves, with others, we come back home. That's what Jesus was here for. There's a lot he wasn't here for. But those few statements, I just I, they came to my mind as an example of Jesus's differentiation. He knew who he was. And you could say he lived by a set of guiding principles or values, right? And they were rooted in his identity as a beloved child of God. And so what does that offer for us? Well, I hope you know this today. You are a beloved child of God. From head to toe, you are daughter, you are son, you are beloved. And I wonder how Jesus' own framing of his guiding principles could help us form our own. And that's a question we talked about. What are your guiding principles? And what helps you decide the parameters of them? He lived out of this place of life with God. He didn't just make them up from a kind of widespread, whatever I want to do. He was formed by that. And I was thinking about this series we're in. This series called Peace of Mind, right? And I was thinking of one thing Jesus says, where he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. What if that kind of vision formed our guiding principles? And what would they be? Yeah, and we were talking about that. What would you say to the guiding principles thing? Yeah, I think, you know, in an exercise about this, there are a few that I think that I had written down, you know, as things that I wanted to be guiding principles in my life that I think have been useful on in this particular area, yeah. you know, in the thought of being a non-anxious presence. And I think some of those are, and these will be different for every person. This is like looking in my journal, but this is basically, you know, I say with every interaction with another human being, I'm going to start from a framework and a position of love. Um, you know, if I enter an interaction with another human from something other than love, you know, from hate, you know, or from, from you know, separation, there's just nowhere to go yeah. from there, you know, in that conversation. Um, I think the second thing is to stay curious. And this might be one of the most useful things I think that has changed in my life over, over time is just leaving all of the room for the things I don't yet know about the person or people that I am interacting with. That's good. Um, you know, we see those images of like, you know, an iceberg and you're looking at the very top and you just don't see the thing 10 times as large underneath. And I think, I think with groups of people, with situations at work or in families or in life, you know, I mean, with friendships, they, we bring our entire selves 
to the table, right? I, when I come to interact with you, I'm bringing everything you know and don't know about my growing up, about my work, about my family, about whatever interactions I had earlier that day, about this, this terrible thing that happened in my life, this wonderful thing that happened in my life. And those are all there behind me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all you see is a moment, right? And that's, that's true of all of us, that we're seeing people who have this huge, you know, interesting, complex reality behind them. And I think staying curious about that leads into the next thing, which is that I try really hard to like everyone. (laughs) Now, I mean, that's that's not all, you know, that's going to be easier for some people than others. And it's like, that doesn't mean you're going to become best friends with everyone, that you're going to agree with everything that someone does. Think overall that you agree with that, you know. But it's like most people you can find interesting, right? Or like something about them. And I think these things diffuse this. Um, this sort of reactive presence. Um, And then I think the other thing is maintain integrity. And this is the idea that I'm not spun up by internal anxiety when something distressing is happening around is this guiding principle that I know who I am, that there will be only one me at all times, yeah. right? That that who I am in situation A and who I am in situation F really need to be the same. You know, I mean, some version of the same thing because of living out of that guiding principle idea. I love that. And I think that's the question we wanted to pose on this first kind of way to be an onyx presence is what are your guiding principles? And maybe you're like, I don't know. What's beautiful is we're all on a journey and we're invited to sort those out with Jesus. But what would it look like this week to, to kind of process those? And maybe you're here and you're like, I think I want to reorient mine a little bit. You know, Hannah's given me some good things to think about. That's the invitation. And maybe you're here and like, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I would just point out in your program, you came in, there's a connect card. One of the ways we use that is, I have a question. You can write it there. We can talk. We can process. Maybe some of you would say, we should have like a learning lab on how to form guiding principles in a way of life. Write that on there. But we're here to do this together. I love how you said that. So that's the first one where we lean into this way of uh, being differentiated over reactive. So what's the second way we can kind of live a non-anxious life? Yeah, the second one is to look at community as being greater than hurting or blaming. Um, you know, and we use that word community. I think that there are other words you could use there depending on kind of what rings true for you. But that might be connection. Um, you know, and it's, it's that we... We overcome this separation and blame by being integrated together. Um, And we see this in Jesus. We see this this example lived out all over the place in Jesus when we started talking about what are some of the ways. I mean, there were too many. We didn't have time to list them all. But I think the snapshot that almost gave the clearest view of this was the way that Jesus chose his disciples. So the 12 people who would spend the most time with him. Um, And we see that kind of in, in Luke 6, 12 through 16, we actually see this talking through of the people that Jesus chose, that he, they, he didn't only choose them to be his learners, right, to be with them. He actually chose these people to represent him. Yeah. And some of these people would have been, you would have thought were polar opposites to the things that Jesus would have believed, to where he would have been from, to what he would have thought was the, the best way to do things, just not the same. Yeah. Um, and we see this described by an author named Dan White um, in Love Over Fear, where he says, in the selection of his disciples, Jesus gathered three zealots who were militant nationalists, a tax collector who favored the Sadducee party, six fishermen who lived hand to mouth and were exploited by Roman taxation, one member of the Sicari party, and a wealthy nobleman who was linked to the Pharisees. Now, I mean, if you could 
substitute those words with things in our culture, I mean, this is extreme. Yeah. Right? Extreme. I mean, this is, he chose drastically different people who would have been natural enemies, you know, honestly. Like, they would not have wanted to share a table. Um, you know, the person exploiting and the person being exploited, you know, I mean, we're being welcomed right. in together, right. um, you know, into this new way. And I think we see Parker Palmer, um, you know, has beautiful thoughts about most things, but this, this as well says, in true community, we will not choose our companions, for our choices are so often limited by self-serving motives. Instead, our companions will be given to us by grace. Hmm. Often they will be persons who will upset our settled view of self and world. In fact, we might define true community as that place where the person you least want to live with lives. So, yeah, we could just be done, you know, yeah. with and Parker. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, where do we see this hurting and blaming in our lives? Um, you know, where do we see it for ourselves? Where do we see it broadly in our community? It's easier to see out there than it is in here. Um, it's, you know, it's less painful. But I think, and, and I think the, the examples of this can feel triggering. You know, it's like we can hear some of these words and some of these things we have such deep feelings about, we really don't know what to do with it. You know, and I think, but that's exactly what this whole thing is, right? What does it look like to be a non-anxious presence even in that? So when we're looking at huge things, things that matter, right? We can name things, things like what's happening right now in Israel and Gaza, right? You probably have some strong opinion about that, about some part of it, right? Um, so does someone else, you know? And so how are, how are we coming to the same table together, yeah. right? And figuring out a non-anxious way yeah. to move forward when things like that are true. Um, you know, we see this broadly in politics. We see it in religion. We see it in social media. Um, you know, part of my work involves HR. I can tell you one of the ways that I see this hurting and blaming reality playing out is in just observationally a huge growth in what we as people in our society label as toxic. You know, I do lots and lots of interviews, and I would say 50% or more of the time, someone references a prior workplace as toxic, um, using that specific word. And that's, which I've just taken note, like, oh, that keeps happening. Like, that keeps coming up. And so, like, so what does that mean? Um, You know, and I think it means a lot of things. I mean, most of us in the room probably have experienced some really awful things at work. So I think, you know, there's some of it where, okay, someone is telling me that they have experienced something really painful at work. Um, also, though, sometimes I think we have, we've done this us and them thing, right? Where it's like someone made a decision I didn't like. Someone made a policy I really am offended by. Someone did something I don't agree with. And now I'm going to say that whole thing, you know, I'm, I'm out, <laughs> right? You know, like, because I, you know, and we do that relationally. And that's, and I think this is, you know, these things are nuanced. And I think that's part of it. Non-anxious presence requires an appreciation of nuance, yeah. right? There are relationships people should leave, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's, I would never say that's not true. And then there are other ones that we need to prevail a while, right? Yeah. And so it's like, so I think figuring that out, right? Being open yeah. to looking at the nuance of that and asking the mm-hmm. questions. Um, and I think like, if you're, if you've got your note sheet, I think a couple things that, that I penned down that I thought, oh, how would I look at this in my own life? would be, number one, think of a time within the past month that you felt offended or angry 
made a quick judgment about someone else, or felt threatened by someone else's beliefs or decisions. And that right now, it's just like, note that down. Like, I had that feeling. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I could think of three specific, you know, think, as I took some time with that, I was like, oh, yep, I can think of those things. So I'm going to write that down and, and circle back to it, right? Um, second, think of an issue or two that just makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. So when you hear a specific name, something political, some major cultural issue, some some theological point, if there's something that it's like that thing's mentioned and you're on, right? I mean, you're just like, you know, I feel that. Um, Write that down. Right. And just um, just think through, OK, I'm going to come back to that. Right. And think about how can I be a non-anxious presence in the world, even in that. And I think that we are coming up to Thanksgiving where you will have abundant ability to practice a different way around those trigger topics. Yes. Um, we, I thought of a time about four, three years ago, because this was an election year, um, we were attending a Thanksgiving meal. And I knew that present at that meal would be family members that had opposite, very opposite <laughs> perspectives on prominent cultural events at that time. One of those family members being my eldest son, um, who, would, who would allow me to say this, um, who uh, Enneagram 8, <laughs> love with all my heart, justice warrior, but, but he, um, there was another person at the table that was going to have the opposite perspective he did. And I actually told him, like, you may be dismissed the second they clear the dishes, and I will pay you $50 if you say nothing. <laughs> because <laughs> because we just wanted to wanted to preserve the peace of Thanksgiving. But then I think, come back, you know, come back later in the week and say, do those situations tempt me yeah. to herd, like to go into, to divide into camps or to blame, you know, or to objectify yeah. someone else? Like, are those situations where I'm doing that? Um, and I think, think through some lenses that help with that are Think through positive intent towards someone you blatantly disagree with. Um, There's this reality, I think, that I fill the gap for myself with compassion and understanding, right? If I'm late or snap or do do something that's just not ideal, you know, it's like, well, I know all the things that happened before and why that, you know, like, why that happened, right? Like, that was perfectly justified. Um, But for someone else, I can fill that gap with suspicion or judgment, right? You know, it's like, I just see the negative thing, you know, and whereas I might give myself something else. And I think we see in Jesus that he fills the gap with grace. And so can we do the same? And then I think, think through how much, you know, in this hurting, blaming, separation, um, we talk theologically about the idea that there's, you know, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, right? Um, What in my life whether it's theological or otherwise, am I holding in the closed fist, right? We would say there are closed fist things that just never change, can't change, core truths, you know, must be this way. And then there's a whole lot more that's open hand, right? Like where it's like, oh, we might kind of land on a whole bunch of different places here. Um, And I just think if I'm holding too much in my fists, then I'm approaching life ready to fight, right? And so, yeah, those are just some models. And I would say those things, some homework is just circle back on the things we noticed about ourselves and ask some of these questions. I I love that. I I mean, I think that's really helpful. And even when you started and kind of wove throughout Jesus, he had thoughts too. He was fully human. So he knows what this is like. But you, you said something, he would regularly come to the table. He would be curious. He would lean in versus leaning away, and that's what we're invited to do. So we've looked at a couple of things, right? The differentiation over reaction, this notion of community over blaming, and then lastly, we would say a way to be a non-anxious presence is to value and live into love over the quick fix. 
would you agree with me that love's going to take time? It's just going to take time. And I was thinking about Jesus in this. Uh, in John chapter 13, he'd been with his friends for years, and he says, to them, he says this to them. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other, notice, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Well, how did he love them? He kept showing up. When they were on different sides of things, he didn't dip out. He kept inviting them in to the table over and over and over again. He loved them well for years, not just a minute. And he says, so take what I've given you and offer it to someone else. And then this, may we never lose how radical this statement is. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not being right about everything, not being the loudest, not having the most money, our love for one another is, there was a guy who wrote a book years ago called Love is the Killer App, and it is. That is what changes everything. And we're invited to love, and I think it's practicing what Hannah talked about, staying in the game when that's what we need to do, and we love for the long haul, not the quick fix. There's a text that shows up, and rightfully so on a lot of occasions, but I think it's timely for this particular way of being a non-anxious presence. And maybe just a reminder of what love actually looks like. Love is patient and love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. That's something better than the quick fix alternatives, right? Of blaming, dipping out, trying to maneuver. This is what heals the world. And I pray you would know this morning you are so loved. The God of the ages has entered into the anxious systems of our lives. And he said, walk with me, follow me. And I'm gonna love you well, and I'm going to show you a non-anxious way. And I'm going to invite you to go offer that to the people you live with. One moment at a time. One moment at a time. It's why we step to the communion table every week. is to remember the non-anxious one who is healing us through his death and his resurrection. Who offers us broken bread for our brokenness. And in his body makes us whole. Shows us a beautiful way. And his blood poured out, his sacrificial death. He's absorbed all of the anxious systems. And he is healing us and sending us as healers. And so today we were talking about what should we do as we wrap this up? And you had a great question, a great simple question. Yeah, I think just thinking through, okay, what will I take with me today? Yep. Um, so whatever, whatever stood out to you, piqued your interest, thought, oh, I want to, need to, long to, lean in more there, or I'm really afraid of that. <laughs> one, one of those things, right? Whatever, whatever was the hardest to hear or the most encouraging, I think let's just do something, right, with, with what we've been presented with, with the opportunity, and take something with us, becoming yeah. more, more non-anxious presences in our lives this week. And so as we do that, a couple of invitations. One, in just a moment, the communion table, which Jesus sets and offers himself fully. Again, in his death and resurrection, all is made new. You, you're invited. You're invited to come and experience that, to remember that, to say yes to Jesus, whether it's the first time or 
the hundredth time. But I would also invite you to take a few moments as we wrap up and grab that Connect card out of your program. And, and that question, what will you take today? Name it. And maybe it's naming it by saying, I feel invited into this. I need help with this. And maybe you'd share a prayer request. Whatever your next step is, name it. We'll collect those in a few minutes, but um, let me pray for us and then we'll step to the table of communion and we'll consider what our, what our takeaway is. Would you stand with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, we are in your good company. We live in a world that has pervasiveness of anxious systems, but we look to you and you are not that. You are our hope and goodness and you invite us in these really practical ways to live a more peaceful life, a life that actually embodies something more whole in our houses, in our neighborhoods, and everywhere we go. And so today, we know you're inviting us. Help us to hear well and respond well. But help us to do it out of a sense that you go first, like you show us the way, you heal us, you invite us to follow you into liberation. And so as we step to the table of communion today, we remember that, we receive that goodness, and we go to embody it. But will we do it thoughtfully, prayerfully, and consider how you're inviting us in this moment to be healers, to be a non-anxious presence. And we thank you for that. Amen.